Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Thank you so much to Audible for sponsoring today's episode. For those of you who don't know, Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, business motivation, and also podcasts. They've recently launched their newest plan called Audible Plus. With Audible Plus, you get full access to their Plus catalog filled with thousands of select originals, audiobooks, and podcasts, and connects you to just amazing content. The best time to try it is now with their holiday offer, because for only $4.99, a month for your first six months. This is a fantastic deal. And all you have to do to get it is visit audible.com slash Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, or text Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, to 500-500. Again, visit audible.com slash Zibby or text Zibby to 500-500. I love Audible and listen all the time in my car and on walks. I recently finished Searching for Sylvie Lee by Jean Kwok, also Small Animals by Kim Brooks, His Only Wife by Peace Medi and also On All Fronts by Clarissa Ward. So those are four of my recent ones. Um, I hope you'll join me in checking out Audible, audible.com slash Zibby or text Zibby to 500-500. Did I say that enough times? Sarah Crossan is the author of Here is the Beehive. She's Irish and graduated with a degree in philosophy and literature before training as an English and drama teacher at Cambridge University, where she worked to promote creative writing in schools before leaving teaching to write full-time. She completed her master's in creative writing at the University of Warwick in 2003, and in 2010 received an Edward Albee Fellowship for writing. The Weight of Water was her first novel in 2012. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Here's the Beehive is so good. I love how you did it in like a poetic style. It's almost like one big, long poem. And I want you to tell listeners what it's about and then tell me about your decision to make it styled in this way, please. Well, it's about, well, it opens with Anna Kelly, who's a solicitor, getting an estate lawyer, getting a call from a woman to say that her husband has died and that she took care of the the last will and testament. And Anna realizes very quickly in this conversation that the woman is referring to her lover and a man that she had been having an affair with. So this is how the book opens. We learn straight away that her lover is dead and it's how she deals with this grief. And so the book takes place in, it's sort of a parallel text. So you have the the past where you see how she met Connor and how that relationship blossomed. And then you also have the present tense. So we see how she copes with the loss of this person who she cannot tell anybody about, that she has to grieve alone because of the secret nature of that relationship. And she has things about her life that come out through the book. So I think the reader is on occasion surprised by things that we find out about her life. And 
writing in verse, it just wasn't a decision at all. It, it just happened that way. I, I've written lots of YA novels, children's novels in verse. And I started to do that when I read The Wonderful Out of the Dust by Karen Hess, which won the Newbury Medal in the 80s. And I was teaching that to a sixth grade class in New Jersey. And I thought, my goodness, what is this <laughs> way of writing? It's amazing. And I started to write that way at that time. Um, and I haven't been able to to let it go. I have written some prose novels, but um, this is my first adult novel and I felt it had to be written in verse, really. Well, there you go. <laughs> I love actually in the first few pages trying to figure out who everybody was. And I kind of like read a couple passages again and I was like, no way, is this really what's happening? I couldn't believe it. Like the way you had it set up and just sitting there, this this lawyer with the run in her stockings getting this horrific news and then the devastation that followed. I mean, it's like a combination of horrible secrets with, you know, affair and love. I don't know. You got all the ingredients. <laughs> I was reading it yeah. this morning as my kids were like crazy. And so I grabbed like a little scratch paper and wrote this by hand, a quote from your book. You wrote, we plan for death, make sensible decisions while gorging on life, but no one intends to die. So I loved that quote. Tell me about that thought behind that and all of it. I think that we always believe we're promised a tomorrow and I don't know that we are. And I mean, this book was written for COVID, but I think COVID has made that perfectly clear to all of us. You know, what house have you chosen to live in or apartment have you chosen to live in? Who have you chosen to live in that space with you? And those things become glaring and have become glaring, I think, in the last six months. But I, I just wanted to imagine a world where something was taken away suddenly and then the collapse, the aftermath of that. And for me, it, it is absolutely a book about grief and who is eligible to grieve. And so I think that a lot of people come to the book really disliking this character because the setup is sort of exposing for them. So a lot of readers have reacted quite violently <laughs> and said, well, she was having an affair. Like, who cares how she feels? Um, and I think that's a really interesting reaction. I think women particularly have had very, very strong reactions to the book. Young women, perhaps stronger reactions than older women who have scars and know that life is complicated. But that's that's been really interesting for me that it has polarized people. I have people saying they love the book and then people absolutely hating the book. So it's been a good one for book groups. I've, I've chatted to a few book groups um, in the nicest possible way. People say they, they, they don't particularly enjoy the character. But as I say, I think that's because it's kind of exposing for the reader. It, it's not really about the character. I think it's about the reader and what the reader is bringing to that story. And your book already came out in the UK. Is that where you have the book groups? Yeah, yeah. So the UK and Ireland have had some book groups. So it came out in on August 20th in, over here. It's like ESP. You get a little glimpse forward of what's going to happen over here. <laughs> a little test marketing <laughs> yeah. run with, uh, you know, yeah. not really a test market. It's an enormous market. But where did writing from grief come from? Have you gone through something yourself? Is this something that you just wanted to tackle? Tell me where the, the feelings of this came from. Yeah, I've experienced grief not in the same way that the character Anna has experienced grief, but I wanted to also write about secrecy in grief. And I think there are a lot of things that for a lot of people, they grieve silently. You know, whether that's that they have, you know, doing the research and speaking to lots and lots of women. And I didn't just speak to women who had affairs. I, I spoke to women who were going through grief. And then I just tried to talk to women generally about what is 
a secret that you keep. And there was such, well, in terms of the relationships that women have had in their lives, the secrets the women have kept, are, you know, having a, an affair with a co-worker, a relationship with someone of the same sex, someone of a different religion, a family member, a teacher or a professor. So a huge number of, of women that I spoke to were, were in secret relationships, but then also just other types of secret grief. So speaking to a woman who had a, a child who was not neurotypical and how that felt for her on a day-to-day basis, but she couldn't really, she didn't really want to talk about it because it was, she felt so bad about that. She felt so bad that she was even upset in the first place that she had a child who who was a challenge to her. So that's kind of what I meant at the beginning, this legitimacy of grief, like who is entitled to grieve and for what are we entitled to grieve? And I was listening to Brené Brown speak on her podcast recently about COVID and how we say to ourselves on a daily basis, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't get too upset because, you know, I have a house and I have food on the table and my home is warm. And she said, but there's no hierarchy here. You're, you know, we're all allowed to have our feelings. And just because a person might be going, you know, externally, it's, it appears to be something that's much more difficult. Doesn't mean you don't have your cross, you know, that we're all bearing something. And that when we have empathy for ourselves, we're much better at having empathy with other people. And so when people do say they don't like the character of Anna, I think, I wonder how hard you are on yourself. You know, the fact that you can't empathize with this character who is grieving in this book, are you particularly hard on yourself? And I think from the friends I know who read the book, it does seem that those who dislike the characters have things about themselves as well that they're, they're not coping with too well. And that was a challenge for me to like this character. You know, as a writer, it was a real stretch. Can I give her nothing that, that makes her sympathetic? And yet can I, as a writer by the end, be devastated for her and feel for her and cry for her and want her to be okay? And so that was work. Like that was me having to do a lot of emotional work myself to get there, to feel for this person who, if you told me her story, I wouldn't like her either. Wow. But there is that universal human compassion. Whenever anybody has someone ripped away from them, you also immediately kind of put yourself in their shoes and think about the things that have been ripped from you and then have that compassion. I think it's hard to limit it based on circumstance. Well, I think that says a lot about you, actually. Oh. <laughs> I, d- I don't think that's a general feeling. I don't think that, I mean, that hasn't been the general reaction. I think that says a, a lot about the person who is listening, not necessarily about the story that's being told or kind of a general compassion that we have. Yeah. All right. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I think it says something quite nice about you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I don't know. I just like, it's just in the same way that like, no matter how terrible a person is, I don't wish ill on, I don't want anything bad to happen mm. to them. You know, I mean, there's a lot of mm. stuff in the news now. I don't know. Everybody's like hoping for terrible things to happen to people who can be terrible. And I don't know. I don't think yeah. anything justifies. No, I know. I, I, I think it's Scott Turo, the writer who said, you judge a society not on the way that we treat people who are loved, but on the way we treat people who are hated. Mm. So how do we treat the people who are most hated? And that shows a lot about who we are. So I, I think you're right. Um, there's a lot of ill, you know, there's sort of sending ill wishes towards particular people at the moment, hoping that, you know, hoping for their downfall. I think you also, in your butt, captured some of the immediate aftermath, that like shock value of grief and how Anna stops eating and like everything and her and her lets her hair go and you know everybody notices but no one can pinpoint it and the fact that she can't reveal it, it just makes it all the worse but it's like those 
first weeks or days or weeks or when you're integrating that information with everyday life again are so challenging. And I feel like you, you like got to the heart of that particular time. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think, I think it was, it was watching, observing, having gone through things myself, but also I think, I mean, spoiler is it's a spoiler. I don't know what page it comes out on, but she's a mother as well. And, and she finds that difficult. And that's something that readers have judged her for as well. So she's just this terrible mother. I'm saying, well, have we all not had moments where we have not been our best selves? I can think of many. I'll write you a list. It'll be pages and pages where I know I could have done better. And so I think that's the the one thing that's leveled at Anna, which bothers me, that I don't think, I think if the protagonist had been a male, it, that, that wouldn't be leveled at him, that he's a terrible father. He's He's disconnected from his children. Of course she's disconnected from her children. She's disconnected from herself. She's disconnected from her whole life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Having kids makes everything more complicated. (laughs) I was on Instagram like debating if I should admit how like not proud of my mom behavior I was the other day. And I was like, no, I think I'm going to delete this. Nobody needs to know. (laughs) They can imagine like everyone's been there, but still I don't necessarily need to put it on display. Everybody slips. I mean, not in like a, a you know, lifelong damaging way, but it's a lot having kids. And when you throw on extra emotion over it, it's a lot. It's, you know, and then they take on your emotion too. I mean, kids are like sponges. So, you know, you can't hide it necessarily. (laughs) How old is your daughter? Do you have other kids? It's just your daughter or? I just have one. Yeah. She's eight. Yeah. She's back at school now after I think six months. So she's, she's not happy. (laughs) I thought she would be delighted to go back, but she's not She's not enjoying it massively. So I I don't know. I think she feeds off my anxiety. I feed off hers. And yeah, I need to kind of <laughs> be better at hiding my feelings. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that a psychologist would say that was a good thing. But I suppose because she's been at home so much, I end up revealing things to her. Uh, you know, or she ends up overhearing conversations that I'm having. You know, there was an illness in my family and I was trying to deal with that. And there was no for me to go. You know, I'm on the phone. I have to take the phone calls. So, yeah, I think in, I keep talking about the pandemic. But during the pandemic, I think parenthood has been particularly difficult because we spend so much time protecting our children from things. And then they're face to face with it. There's there's nowhere to hide. That's true. I lost my, I went through a, my mother-in-law and grandmother-in-law both had COVID and both passed away during the summer within six weeks. And my husband, Kyle, we were like in charge of her care. You know, it has to be remote because she was in Charlotte, North Carolina. Anyway, I have four kids myself. As all of the calls were coming in and the nurses and I tried to be like, everything's good. Let's go on the trampoline. It's like it seeps in and then it comes out of them in other places too. You know, then like all of a sudden they're having separation anxiety, which they haven't had in years. And you know what I mean? Like you can't, Even if you put on a happy face and don't talk about it, like they feel it. It's like one of these things that nobody really warns you about. Like you can't actually hide your feelings. You have to change your feelings if you don't want your kids to feel them. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, no, yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah, and and I was speaking to um, a psychiatrist not that long ago who was saying, you know, one of the worst things for children is a house where there's silence Mm. because they know there's some kind of danger. They know there's... Silence in terms of tension or silence in terms of a house where people are not getting on very well, but they're not shouting at each other because a child senses it. They know, they feel that energy and they attach that danger elsewhere. So it's like, I know something's not quite right, but everything looks right. So, you know what, I'm going to suddenly be scared of buttons. (laughs) I'm going to suddenly be scared of, you know, ice cream or whatever. Not likely, but 
you know, I'm going to, I'm going to attach my fear. So true. Just like sort of like a dog approaches a situation, right? Like how you don't hear anything necessarily and they pick up everything and they just like freeze and they're like <laughs> looking around. <laughs> With my dog, it's like howling in the middle of the night. Oh. <laughs> be quiet, Hilda, be quiet. <laughs> so tell me more about the process of, of writing. What's your writing process? Do you work there at like a shared space or how long does each of your books take? What made you switch to adult fiction versus younger children's fiction? I used to work in a in a co-writing space in the, space in the writer's room in New York City, actually, when I lived when I lived in Jersey City, I used to go in every day, but then my daughter was born and I stopped doing that and then eventually relocated to the UK. And then I had a, a writing space built at the end of my garden. But actually that stopped working. That kind of isolation in my own studio didn't really benefit me creatively, I don't think. I was a school teacher for 10 years and I need people and I need relationships and I need noise. So I half the time ended up going out to a library or to a coffee shop anyway and I'm now relocated again I'm still in the UK but I've moved two hours away from where I previously lived so I found this amazing co-working space where I'm allowed to bring my dog (laughs) (laughs) and they have like little rooms for zooms and they have desks that you can book out and tea and coffee and that's lovely so I'm trying to not come as much because I'm trying to sort of stay as distant from people as possible but there it's great I mean there's hand sanitizer everywhere you have to spray all your desk down people stay away from one another so they're just the noise that kind of it's quite nice to have that noise in the background of, of other people living and working and there's all different types of people working here which is quite nice as well so you check my chat to an architect one day and a web designer another day so that's that's quite interesting because you know, writers tend to talk to writers and, <laughs> and that's it and we forget that all these other amazing jobs exist <laughs> so yeah that's that's how I'm working at the moment and in terms of writing for adults I just didn't see the I mean it was not a conscious decision at all it was just that I had this idea this hook that I imagined well what would it be like if a woman was to lose somebody that and she couldn't tell the world about it and then I had a conversation with some friends when we were out in the pub one night and and asked have you ever been in a relationship that was secret and slowly but surely every single person around the table (laughs) revealed a secret I thought gosh this is a really universal experience and I wanted to write about it and I couldn't write about it within the content it was within children's fiction I I couldn't find a way in that's probably better (laughs) yeah so, I mean, I, I gave it a go. Did you? <laughs> I, thought, could, I thought, could I write about a parent having a relationship and it being secret and what that does to the family? But I decided to write an adult novel instead. And a lot of people, I mean, there's this, uh, I, I was interviewed by someone who said, oh, your apprenticeship in children's fiction. And I was, <gasps> I was horrified because I never, I, I mean, I absolutely don't see writing for adults as a step up in any way. In, in fact, to some extent, writing for adults has been a little easier because I don't have to watch every single word. I mean, I do in terms of making the language as good as it can be, but, you know, like the swearing and being careful not to, to, to say something that may be interpreted by a child in a particular way that is damaging or, or just not of my politics, you know. So, but with an adult reader, you can say what you want and let them, let them do the hard work of dismantling it. And I, I need to make my children's books palatable to teenagers. And I don't have to do that for adults. I don't care about it being palatable. I just want it to be as real as possible. So in a way, it was kind of freeing and easier is not the right word, but definitely freeing and 
that's painstaking, I guess, in some ways, especially when it came to the edit. The edit was so joyous <laughs> compared to editing a, a children's book. How, how long did the book take to write? The first draft? About three, about three years, probably three years in total. Okay. And then it, it was quite, I think it was kind of clean when it got to the, to the publisher, which is always quite nice to not have a huge edit to do with your publisher. I will probably for the next book, but for this one, it was, uh, it was kind of clean. So that was nice. Tell me about your next book. I haven't started writing it yet. I'm actually meeting my editor in a couple of weeks so we can talk through some ideas. I had, I had written some stuff and sent it to her and she said, did I, do you really want to write this? It doesn't seem like you're, it just doesn't seem to have the energy. And I said, no, not really, but I'm on deadlines. <laughs> That's what you're getting. And she said, Hey, why don't we just wait and see what comes to you rather than forcing you to write something that you don't want to write so in the meantime I've, I've written a YA a young adult novel in verse again and that's going to come out in August but I haven't edited that yet so I'm, I'm doing that at the moment excellent do you have any advice to aspiring authors yeah I guess if you <laughs> wanted to be a connoisseur of wine you drink loads of wine <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I would do or if you wanted to play tennis you'd just sort of pick up a, a tennis racket and you'd start banging a ball about and I think a lot of people have an idea of what it is to be a writer which is a fantasy and a, and a romantic idea but being a writer is there's a lot of drudgery involved in it and so to write you just got to sit down and and get writing rather than kind of have a fantasy about it and also to make you know I, it's so easy to think of publication as the holy grail but with publication come other problems you know where am I on the bestseller lists you know have I won a prize you know, what are my reviews like so that idea that you will suddenly feel like a real writer once you get published that's not true because there are always new mountains to climb and hurdles every day and I always another thing I tell people I'm giving a lot of advice now but another thing I tell people is it's not going to make you happy I think a lot of people think that once they get an agent or once they get a publisher it's going to make them happy but your other life goes on all the other stuff continues and I won a, a big prize in the UK, a children's prize called the Carnegie Medal. And I got a call from my publicist to say, are you sitting down? And I thought someone had died. I was like, <laughs> yeah. She was like, oh, you won the Carnegie Medal. I said, oh my goodness. And I'm screaming. I was like, I'm so happy. And then I put the phone down my, um, and my daughter was basically <laughs> saying I needed to wipe her bottom. <laughs> She's like, I need you to wipe my, and I was like, okay, there we go. Back into reality, back into life. I was given sort of, four seconds to enjoy this moment and then like right you're a mom and, and, and back to to your real life so it's not going to make you happy it might add to it it might take away from it but it, it's certainly not going to to give you everything that you think you you want in life it's I don't know for me it took I guess winning the Carnegie to realize that my relationships had to had to be the thing that fed me and nourished me which they do now although I would say that phase of parenting is not always the most nourishing when you're you know, in it. <laughs> so I wouldn't beat yourself up about that too much, but <laughs> sometimes you just have to get through certain things. <laughs> well, that's great perspective to have. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming on Mom's No Time to Read Books. I'd really love for you to, I have a virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club and we have authors come on and we all read the book and then there's Q&A with the author. And if you have any interest, I think this would be a great book for my club. So if you want to do it, I could work with your publicist and try to find a time. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to. I think one thing, if, if, if the readers were reading it, is my mum suggested that readers were one of three people. That She suggested that 
the reader was either a person who had had an affair, a person who had had an affair done to them, you know, they were the victim of it, or they were a person who was terrified it was going to happen to them. Mm. <laughs> so when I've spoken to book groups before, it's like, which of those people are you before you go into it? Just know who you are when you're going in. And I think that it will tell you a lot about what you feel when you come out of it, I think. Interesting. But yeah, I would love to. I'd really love to. Your book is like a Rorschach test, right? <laughs> I also found I am divorced and remarried. When I started telling people, this is years ago, but when I was would tell friends and sit down with them, you know, I'm getting, you know, getting a divorce or whatever, their reaction had nothing to do with me. And it just said everything about their own marriage. It was basically like, if you want to find out about your friend's marriages, tell them you're getting a divorce, see how they react and then be like, nah, I'm kidding. Because <laughs> that's the way to get at the heart of like, I mean, I don't actually recommend that. I'm just joking. But like, you know, once sometimes when you put up a sort of mirror is when everything else comes pouring out so in the same way as your book does <laughs> I had a friend who when she told a, another friend that she was getting divorced her friend said but who's going to do things like change the light bulbs in your house <laughs> and she thought that is the literally the only use you can see for your husband yeah. <laughs> he changes light bulbs that is it that's the extent husband, of what he adds handyman. to the marriage husband handyman <laughs> I don't know I mean <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God. Well, it was so nice to speak to you. So nice it's to speak been to really, you. really fun. Yes, you too. All right. Well, have a great day and thanks so much. Yeah. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for Audible sponsoring this episode. Get your amazing deal $4.95 for six months for your first six months for their holiday Audible Plus offer. Go to audible.com slash Zibby or text Zibby to 500-500. Thanks, Audible. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Mm-hmm.